recently, Ian Desher, he's a fellow who wrote the Star Wars series in Shakespeare language. He started up a challenge for 2020, challenging people to read all of the works of Shakespeare within the course of a year. I'll put that link to that uh, to that challenge here in the in the website. But he he's now on a second round, which is Henry the Sixth. But his his round was uh, first started off with Twelfth Night, and I went back and I reread Twelfth Night. And boy, it's wonderful to go back to those plays after so many years and find new things. Now my. Uh, constant idea that I keep going back to with Shakespeare um, what what is referred to as an idea fix my idea fix about Shakespeare is that his plays in some way or another reflect a philosophical event that occurred uh, some 300 years before him and was still going on in Europe during his time in a big way we refer to his era as the Renaissance or the Renaissance if you're American and the Renaissance is really uh, a time when, when, when the old institutions of the church and the state and, and society had come under great pressure in the 1300s uh, due to famine in 1315 and a plague uh, in 1345 and war uh, between France and England. And so there was a great deal of upheaval going on and sort of led to the intellectuals to look back to uh, earlier texts, especially Greek and Roman and renew those texts for sources of inspiration. And Shakespeare frequently would take his inspiration from various lives of the Roman writers, the, 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 the lives of Plutarch, for instance, and others. And so he was drawing his material, his inspira inspirational material, from those works. But I have, a, I have a theory that as societies, we have large-scale philosophical premises or philosophical struggles that we go through as a society and that they last for quite some time. They can be based on a piece of technology or they can be based on an event or they sometimes just emerge, but um, they go on and on and on, sometimes for hundreds, maybe even thousands of years. And I think there are some that are perennial as well, philosophical ideas that are perennial. And whether people know that they are directly struggling with them or not, um, they, they certainly seem to show up in some eras more than others. So, for instance, one philosophic idea is, what does it mean to be a free human being? What does it mean to be a man? And this philosophical idea that sort of um, has emerged over and over again during our society really came to a head with the uh, Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of America. Because when the Declaration... Uh, proclaims or declares that all men are created equal by their creator. That leads to a whole conversation, a whole uh, debate. What do we mean by all men? Does that mean all males or does that mean uh, only white men with land? Uh, what does that mean? And it leads eventually in the 1860s in America to civil war and then to human rights uh, struggles during the early part of the 20th century and then again in the 1960s and and even now. And so we're still struggling with this idea. Do, do, does the original document mean um, uh, all men, all human beings, all, of no matter what race or color? Uh, what does that mean? That's a philosophical idea which does permeate our society, whether we are directly aware of it or not. One particular perennial idea that I think comes up over and over again in human society is a question of faith 
And we go through these cycles of being a more faith-filled society and then a less faith-filled society. And, and I don't necessarily mean Christian. I, I mean uh, faith uh, as in f full of, of zeal for the divine realm, whether that's in the form of um, the, the gods of Greece or the gods of Rome or the Egyptian um, culture or our Western Christian culture. We go through these uh, high points and low points of, of faith. But really, the crisis has to do more, I think, with what was framed by the uh, theological and philosophical authors and thinkers of the 1200s of the 13th century. It's called the scholastic debate. And this scholastic debate was a debate that grew up in the colleges, the scholae of Europe during the 1200s. The scholae of Europe, which began with the scriptoria of, um, of Charlemagne. The scriptoria were instituted by Charlemagne as schools where they would copy texts from Rome and texts from Greece that were lost or that were in danger of being lost. Uh, and so they chose important texts and they sat and they wrote these texts down on a new piece of paper, quite literally. Scripto, script, uh, scripture. So scriptoria, the scriptoriae. And the scriptoriae, they were merely collecting and preserving this, this bulk of knowledge that had been passed down from Greeks to Romans, or from Egyptians even, to Greeks to Romans, and, and then into, into Europe. And they did so primarily because they were worried that that knowledge was going to be lost. So when the scriptoriae were busy writing down all this rasmataz, that led then to a whole school of men who were familiar with those texts, who were um, not just copying, but were now comparing one text to another. So, for instance, you would have learned men who were very familiar with these texts, because they would memorize many of them, were very familiar with these texts, and then they would uh, compare, this text says this about this issue, and this text says this about this issue, and they contradict which one is correct. And then they would try to synthesize, come to a conclusion. But what was the actual idea? What was the, what was the conclusion here? So this text may say this about God, or this text may say that about God, or this text may say this about education, and that text may say that about education. And, and by comparing those different authors, those authoritative authors, they would then synthesize and come to a conclusion about what the real thing was that uh, was correct uh, in thinking. And that was sort of what emerged into the eventual universities. The colleges then and the universities in Europe emerged from the scriptoriae of Charlemagne. And they trundled along until they came to a fellow by the name of Abelard, and he was an amazing thinker. Abelard was, because he not only synthesized things, he began to take that synthesis of authority figures and apply it to very powerful questions that he would raise on his own and come up with his own answers as well. And this led, Abelard's really thought began to lead to a whole debate that raged through the universities of Europe in the 1200s. So that's basically 400 years of European history there in a couple minutes. So sorry about that if you didn't put your seatbelt on. 
the, ba- the major debate that we're talking about then is called the scholastic debate. And you may have heard of it once or twice in a nutshell. What it is, is it's a debate about the nature of the connection of our images and words and ideas to reality itself. We often hear of it as um, a debate about uh, thingness or a, a debate about uh, ideas and forms. It works like this. Here's how it works. We have in our mind um, concepts and ideas and images and impressions of things, and we operate in our lives as though those things were connected to a reality beyond this world. And if if it's connected to reality beyond this world, then what we're doing is we are finding the right images and ideas to express that reality beyond this world. And um, what we say and what we do and how we operate in the world is uh, is really part of a larger pattern, part of a larger what's called logos, uh, which is beyond our own our own uh, conception. Really, we are privy to that pattern, that logos, but we don't make that logos. That logos is something which exists beyond us. And at the at the paragon of that logos, that pattern is the supreme being himself. Refer to him as God or as Deus or whatever, um, or Dios, uh, that supreme being is himself the, the essence, the, um, the, the, the fountain of this, this pattern. This pattern, the Logos, is the thing through which everything that exists in this world came into existence. So all these things in this world are based upon this pattern, which is itself one with the 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 creator himself, the divine being. Put in theological terms, this is that the Father, God the Father, is one with God the Son. God the Son is the pattern, the logos, what is translated as the Word, for instance, in the Gospel of John. And the Word, the pattern, and the Father, the God, love one another so much that they generate a love that itself is substantial, is, is, um, is, the, is the Holy Spirit, referred to as the Holy Spirit. So you have a triune God, and all that exists it, it emerges from that, develops from that, through that pattern. Nothing exists but through that pattern. And so we have a certain ability to find out who that deity is by studying his pattern, and we have an ability to ourselves become one with that pattern by living in accordance with the laws of that pattern. So this whole way of thinking was essentially a platonic way of thinking. It goes back to Plato and, and, and his writings with the character of Socrates. That platonic way of thinking had dominated the church for many, many years because the church emerged out of a combination of Platonic thought, Greek Platonic thought, and and Hebrew thought. So it was a way, it was the dominant way of thinking, and into that mix there was a second way of thinking called an Aristotelian way of thinking, which was uh, what how would say it's not the reverse of this way of thinking; it's sort of an inverse of this way of thinking. The Aristotelian way of thinking was that we see around us uh, objects and images and they repeat frequently and we collect those repeating things in our minds 
as being related to one another. Say, for instance, um, we see plants that have the same sort of brightly colored uh, um, end, uh, end of a stalk, okay? A yellow end of a stalk, yellow, yellow end of a stalk, yellow end of a stalk. And we group those together and we say, this must be the same plant. And then we see other plants that have other colored ends of their stalks. And we say, well, those have the same thing, a brightly colored end of a stalk. And then we say, well, all these things taken together must be similar in, in, in their nature. And we call those by a word called flower. So a flower uh, is this yellow thing over here, but a flower is also this purple thing over here. But the word itself is a catch-all phrase for us to be able to distinguish those objects from, say, a group of cars or a group of clouds or a group of squirrels. The thing itself is not a flower, nor does it follow the pattern of flower. It is merely um, that we use that word in order to distinguish it in our minds from the other objects around it. Well, that's an Aristotelian way of looking at the world, see. And in the scholastic debate, it was hotly debated which one was correct. Was the Platonic way of thinking correct, or was the Aristotelian way of thinking correct? The Platonic way of thinking came to be called the realist camp, because realist thought, realist thought said that there's something real beyond this world to which these patterned things are connected. There really is a logos. The other camp is called a nominalist cult, uh, or uh, we should say a, a, a nominalist group, not cult. That's not the right word, because a nominalist thinks in terms of name only. The thing is connected to another thing by name only, not in reality. Not this is not a real connection to other things or to things beyond this world. It's in name only that things are connected. Now, one might immediately jump to say either, well, the nominalists are where it's at. You know, it's definitely where it's at because there's there's you know, there's nothing beyond this world and therefore there's just random stuff everywhere. But if we go that route, then there's a certain meaninglessness to life and we run into huge problems uh, with things like art and beauty and honor and truth and glory and majesty. So one might say, well, the realists are where it's at. But that runs into problems, too, because the minute we say that there's a pattern or an order uh, beyond this world which we don't control, then what we call free will has no real meaning anymore. Because everything we do in terms of our free will is already set down, is already ordered, is already structured, fit into the pattern. So both camps by themselves have real problems. And the nominalists and the realists in the, in the uh, universities of Europe during the 1200s were having this heated debate until an event, I think it was in 1270, I may get the date wrong, but 1270, the Bishop of Paris put an end to the debate. He published a, a list of anathemas, things that cannot be taught anymore in the schools. And that list was overwhelmingly against the nominalist camp. Um, it really forbade almost everything the nominalists were suggesting. So it really shut down the debate. Because, you know, when you're the Bishop of Paris, you are like the second-hand man to the Bishop of Rome in the Western Church. Third there would be the Bishop of, of Canterbury in England. 
And lo and behold, what happened when the Bishop of Paris proclaimed that these things were anathema, but the Bishop of Canterbury seconded him in England. And so the two major universities, the major university of Paris and the major university of Canterbury, uh, were just the, the the debate ceased or was put down suddenly, and all of these um, nominalists who were suddenly out of a job, or in some cases uh, in in fear of their own lives, they actually fled to Germany. Oddly enough, they they fled to Germany to Wittenberg and the um, the newly established college at Wittenberg, which was uh, established uh, there in the 1500s and. No, it was the 1400s. It was the late 1400s. And in the 1500s, they had their, I think, fourth graduating class, I think it was. And Martin Luther was um, was was one of those graduates. And, and he went on to, of course, start the, or ignite the, uh, the Protestant Reformation. So the scholastic debate leads directly to the, the, the Reformation in, in Europe. But it also leads directly to the Renaissance, because... This debate, which was shut down in roughly 1270, um, then didn't go away. It just well, it had a clamp put on it. Because I, I think that this debate is a, is a perennial human debate. I think it goes as far back as Egyptian culture. We see evidence of it in the character of Akhenaten and his struggle with the priestly class. Um, it seems to be that the camp of the nominalists is not wrong, nor is the camp of the realists wrong. Rather, it's that when the nominalists or the realists alone exist, they tend to be wrong. They run into terrible trouble, difficulties. So it's almost like the two sides have to exist together in a paradoxical way. And when they're split apart by, by an edict like what happened in 1270, then there's a serious issue that occurs. Well, I think that this serious issue that occurred was followed very closely on the heels of this um, uh, this famine that occurred. Because it was in 1313 that the Pope moved the seat of the church from Rome to Avignon. And it's hard for uh, Avignon, France. And it's hard for us to conceive just how powerful that is. That would be a, a somewhat earth-shattering event for, for Europeans. Not only because the Pope had to some degree become the heir of the Roman control, the Roman Empire. For years they had held Europe together, as Hilaire Balak points out, the, the historian Hilaire Balak. Uh, they had held together communication, and they had held together education, they held together finance and their land control and all this, and they kept the deeds, uh, the, the legal deeds. So they were kind of the, the body that was holding together a crumbling empire for many, many years. So when he moved the seat of the church to Avignon, it was a, it, it, it caused a great deal of disruption in the, in the zeitgeist of, of, the, uh, of, of Europe. Imagine for a minute, and this is not anywhere near, but imagine for a minute that our government in the United States, for instance, moved the center of government to Lubbock, Texas. Now, people in Texas might be overjoyed about that, but for the rest of us, it would be disturbing Washington, D.C., for all the good and, and ill that, that, that entails, is the center of our government. It's the center of our country, so to speak, and we identify our, our centralized government with Washington, D.C. Were it to be moved to Lubbock, Texas, I think it would be disturbing to people. And there was a similar disturbance that occurred with the move to Avignon. This also meant that the 
church was under the influence of the French king. And um, then in 1315, there was a massive um, change in the weather, uh, freezing cold temperatures that destroyed the crops. And that led to a 1316 uh, and 17 famine, tremendous famine. Then in 1345, the, the first outbreak of the Black Death occurred in Europe, which ended up taking one third of the population. There was the Hundred Years' War that broke out between France and England and ranged for, for, for well, 100 years. And then right into the War of the Roses in England. So you had a series of famines and plagues and warfare and death. And what would people think? But that was the apocalypse going on in Europe. I mean, many people use that image. This, this is the apocalypse. And so for about 100 years, you had this awfulness going on in Europe. And I think that that would have put a great deal of strain on people's belief system. But the debate then between nominalist and realist probably would have become much more um, pronounced. Uh, it wouldn't have gone away. That leads us up into the 1400s and then in the 1500s after that and Shakespeare's time at the tail end of the Renaissance. Um, so that I think that Shakespeare was really, in many of his plays, you see this struggle with the nature of words or the struggle with the nature of what is the right thing or, or the struggle with whether there's anything beyond this life. So, for instance, Macbeth says... You know, if it were done when it has done, then twere well it were done quickly. And if the assassination could trammel up the consequence and catch with his surcease success, if but that this blow might be the be-all and the end-all, then here, here upon this bank and shoal of time, we'd trip the life to come. That whole section is basically saying, if I knew for sure that there was nothing beyond this world, then I would do this deed immediately. That's the point of the whole speech. And that's a nominalist viewpoint, right? And throughout the play, we have Macbeth struggling with dreams and you know the, the problem of dreams and, oh, my, my head is full of scorpions. Well, that is, again, that's, that, are we alone in this world? Is there nothing beyond this world? Is, if so, where do these ghosts come from? Why is Banquo sitting at my, my, my table? And you see that again in Romeo and Juliet as well. Uh, Romeo, the, the, the name means a pilgrim to Rome, and he is sidetracked by a young Juliet. Juliet is a name which means uh, uh, little Julia. Uh, Julia is another form of the, of the name Zeus. So here is uh, the, a pagan image uh, sidestepping him, and his guide, his Mercury right? Because Mercury was the guide of pilgrims. His guide gets stabbed through the heart, Mercutio. And Romeo himself is, is, is dragged down like a bird by Juliet. And there are passages throughout Romeo and Juliet which have to do with nominalism versus realism. You know, what's, what's in a name? A rose by any other name would smell so sweet, right? And Juliet herself professes nominalistic views. And Romeo who was pursuing a young lady and then gave her up, gets sidetracked from his main task and eventually goes and kills himself. He gets inverted and becomes more effeminate, loses his, his masculinity because he succumbs to this temptation for, for, from Juliet towards nominalism, if you will. 
We see it in Hamlet, who says words, 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 right? Um, or uh, who talks about the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. Hamlet, who himself has graduated from Wittenberg College, a seat of nominalism, has himself had his real father killed and a fake father replaced the real father. That duality that shows up in Shakespeare over and over again seems to indicate a wrestling between nominalism and, and realism. And we see that duality, the twins, the uh, two, two brothers, for instance, or a brother and sister combination, we see it over and over again. So when we read Twelfth Night, it's interesting to note that we have not just a, a, a pair of twins, but two sets of twins, so to speak. Three, almost. We have uh, Viola and her brother, right? And we, then we have uh, Olivia and her dead brother. And then we have Olivia and Duke Orsino, where Orsino loves uh, Olivia. And we have uh, Viola and Duke Orsino, where Viola loves Duke Orsino. So we automatically have a series of, of dualities that seem to exist throughout the play. Um, then you have uh, imagery of being trapped in a dark cage, where a Malvolio gets trapped in a dark cage. And um, that whole imagery of being in a dark cage was sort of the effect of nominalism by itself. And then you have the idea that my brother was dead and then he's brought back to life again, a sort of miraculous bringing back to life, uh, as though he had gone somewhere else, um, which is a realist thing. Where else would he go? That undiscovered country. Then you have the, uh, the, the, the ship at sea originally, where the, the ship breaks up and the brother and sister are separated and think the other one is dead. Well, that's almost like the ship of Europe at sea and, and, and nominalism and realism being split apart. So I don't, I don't know definitively whether or not this is something which exists in the play, but it sure seems like it does. And it seems like that imagery of nominalism and realism is something which Shakespeare was wrestling with in work after work after work. And if we look at the play through that lens of nominalism and realism, the scholastic debate, it may be that we see something we had never seen before and the play takes on a new dimension, mainly because we have not yet solved that problem of the nominalist-realist debate. We still, we still talk about it. It's still with us. Consequently, Shakespeare's plays are still very powerful because they still speak to that issue, that fundamental human issue. And I think that's the, the rub. The, this is not a 13th century problem. This is a fundamental human issue. And it has to do with the way we are as image makers. If we didn't make images in our minds, we would not have this problem. Um, because we make images to understand things, we therefore have a problem with doubting whether the image is connected to any reality or not. Are we merely dealing with words, 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 as Hamlet says, or are we dealing with something real, you know, like the, the ghost of Hamlet's father? Um, that's why I think this play Twelfth Night can really uh, bear the scrutiny of a scholastic debate read. Thanks so much, and uh, thanks especially to everybody's put together things for this Shakespeare challenge. And I challenge you to go forth and to read Twelfth Night in a scholastic debate way. 
kumariyak pa salam saluna vasati netupian eluna kumar bambasar asapurima samaradi un dahan binuna kumariyak pa salam saluna लमहस मालवी करलिए मुवाकल हैगे तुल सालुतिर विवर करुआ मनस सालेलुं उमतू देनुवन रहन एत माँ अभियस मेवनु तुसित सुरन मेवु सुरामय Kumariyak pa salam साल जीवन तपुवन में द हंगुम गाजसें यादम बिंग वेद तलासिंग काम बनकरवाए लापालु चुरुगल क्या कुरुमालुपेति माहनवाए बिंदुनु तुसिते सुरं मेरु Kumariyak pa salam saluna vasasiti netupian eluna kumar bambasar asapurima samaradi un dehan biluna kumariyak pa salam saluna.